Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Cody, let's talk about some NBA playoff basketball. I'm interested in where you want to start because the vibes are going to, the vibes of the beginning point are going to affect the rest of this podcast. So where, where do you want to go with this, Ben? My goal is to not spend 45 minutes talking about the officials or conspiracies or the intent of basketball players on the floor to somehow magically injure other basketball players with secretly dirty moves that can barely be perceived in real time. Like there's some sort of matrix ninja when it comes to trying to injure the other team, because we all know the enemy is bad. That's my goal. I don't want to do 45 minutes on that. Well, now that you referenced it, can you tell the people, what are you, what are you talking about right now? They know what I'm talking about. They know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The games yesterday just it's the I think the I think the playoffs have been um fantastic so far the level of competition the series and this second round we're already getting these great matchups with these eight teams where it feels like about half of the teams could win the championship and the other four teams aren't pushovers because they could win or do something in this round. And then even if they got to the next round, maybe they're kind of dangerous. And each team has really nice narratives around them and things of this nature. So that's until yesterday. I, I don't know how often over the years people kind of descend into the conspiracy referee madness, but it felt like, oh, this is all anyone's talking about. That's what about the basketball? So, so do you do you want to just skip over it, talk about the basketball, or should we should we give it a little bit of 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 limelight for a couple of moments here? What do you want to do? Because you've heard my rants already about these topics, and um, I will I'll punt it back into your court. I guess that's the wrong sport. You can't punt in tennis. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll volley it gently back to your side of the of the court. Okay. So I'm going to speak freely as a Bucks fan here. That's where I want to start. I want to speak freely as a Bucks fan. That's what people want. People want to know how you're feeling as a Bucks fan. I mean, the Bucks are up 2-1 and playing from my perspective just just twin tower level lockdown the paint defense. But but go ahead. We want to hear where you where your mind and heart is as a Bucks fan. Let's get to defense at some point here. But Yesterday was, I mean, when we get down to the finish, like those last five seconds were just, that's everything you want in a playoff game. But Ben, I I, really, I want to be honest with you here. I felt really weird. Like, I don't even think I was cheering during that finish. Like when the Bucks won the rest of the day, I was just like, did they, did they win? Like what? I, I don't know. I felt a little gross as a Bucks fan. Like if I can be perfectly candid with you, I felt a little gross about it, Ben. Because of the the controversial stuff down the stretch of the game. I mean, not even down the stretch of the game. Throughout the game, like I think <laughs> it was it was wild. Like conservatively, yeah, it was a wild game. Conservatively, what Giannis had twelve fouls, seven of them being offensive, right? Yeah, yeah. It was so. So I think there were two. Here's what I'll say about that game in particular. I think there were two huge events swirling around each other to create this kind of perfect storm. One was every playoff series not I shouldn't say every playoff series every playoff season there's a series or two that the intensity gets dialed up so high that within the game if you have the wrong officiating crew in that game you are very likely to have a lot of controversy from both sides around the amount of contact and the leeway and is being called equally on both ends and what about this play and this one now feels like a touch foul but this one feels like wrestling and that was kind of the energy that developed as that game developed um and you have that that's guaranteed the way our brains work i I was listening to zach Lowe the other day and he kept talking about our our stupid monkey brains can't think past the last game (laughs) So I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, when you have one of these games, 
you're guaranteed to have both sides be very upset about the officiating because they only see it through their side's lens. And as the controversial calls start piling up, it reinforces what's happening. Of like, like, I opened up Twitter and I saw a number of Bucks fans complaining endlessly. And immediately I was like, I'm, conf- I'm confused. Didn't Milwaukee win the game yesterday? I'm very confused. Um, so there was that. There was that component. The other component, which, as you know, we were texting about because I was more sensitive to it because I was going to make a video about the sort of dynamic between Giannis and the defense was we we hit the point yesterday of Shaq 2001, like peak Shaqdom, where you have a rock in a hard place. The rock is the Celtics defense that I think is uniquely designed to stop a player like him because even though he's added and worked on the little mid-range and stuff like that, which I love, that's against normal defense, Cody. This is like the Avengers out there that he's going against. I mean, it's really weird. The Bucks are up 2-1 in the series. I read from a source, I haven't double-checked it with the play-by-play or anything like that. I read from a source that Milwaukee's half-court offense in the three games is something like 76, 91, and 75. They've been in the 70s in their half-court offensive rating in two of the three games. Their overall offensive rating in the series, if you look at the play-by-play, is 98.3 in a league where people are up at 112, 115 just to be average. So on one hand, you have this incredible battle. That's the rock. The hard place is Giannis is never going down without a fight, right? And a fight for him is putting his shoulder down and just going harder and faster and stronger. And he did have a couple moves, in particular the game-winning shot at the end, where, from my perspective, he got the defender. He got Grant Williams leaning one way, Eurostep swing back the other way. It's a clean play. It's a beautiful play. But there were a lot of a lot of collisions. And, you know, maybe a couple of them you go, okay, that's a block. But there were, as you said, a lot of also offensive fouls, very few which were called. And I started to get nervous about the dynamic when the Bucks challenged that charge in the first half, which I thought was one of the weirdest challenges ever. And I was like, that's a really weird thing to challenge because that looks like he just completely ran over the defender. And so I think the combination of all of those things created just what I can only describe in retrospect as like basketball chaos. I like that a lot. And I also, I want to go back to the Shaq comparison that you just said, because I think the main difference between the two is when you when you look at, like, Shaq's physicality, he wasn't getting a head start in yeah, those plays. Yeah. Like, like, they were posting him up, and he was just enormous. So when he, like, turned, he would just, like, kill half the team, right? Like, he, he would obviously throw his shoulder, and he would get really physical that way. But Giannis is sprinting towards the basket, and guys like Grant Williams, who's, like, a huge dude, like, he's a bodybuilder, like, he's, he's top 10, like, physique athlete right now in the NBA is just like putting his body in the way and Giannis is like I'm still going through you and the refs like essentially let him they they let him so he's just coming in with a lot more force and you know I'm watching the game and I'm like this is great I love that the Bucks are winning like I love some physicality but as somebody that also likes to play defense when he plays basketball I'm like right yeah what are you supposed to do like what what do you want the Celtics to do about this that's that's my thing I I think you can nitpick any game and especially games that get chaotic like that and say one team got seven calls against them and one team got four there was the play at the end where you know smart was shooting the three and drew holiday put his hand in the cookie jar and so you can you can you can nitpick all that but that happens in playoff games that happens in every year that's to me that's baked in to kind of the the noise and the variance and the fun of the sport although sometimes it's not very fun but The meta discussion, as you said, for me, comes around very rarely seeing defenses that it's like, well, how do you how do you penetrate that defense? How do you do it? They're well positioned. They're well coached. They communicate well. And they have this armada of bodies that's in in a way, Cody. And I'm interested in your take on this because this feels like something you would philosophize on. They feel like the platonic ideal of the modern pace and space switchable defense in terms of like a team that's able to defend a pace and space type of team six 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 physical athletic pretty smart massively switchable long um 
it's it's an incredible defense at this point to me just in a vacuum. And then you see a situation where they come along. Now, if the Bucks had Chris Middleton, I think that would unlock a little bit more. But it's like, just watch almost every half-court possession against Giannis. I went back this morning before we recorded and watched a ton, almost all of the first half possessions. And I, I was saying this to you before we recorded. I loved his defense yesterday. I thought his passing was pretty good. Overall, it was like a good game, but it's really weird seeing the the box score and seeing that he scored 42 points. I'm like, I'm watching the film and he just can't get anywhere most of the time. And one of the adjustments the Bucs made was, um, which they've done before. I think they did it in, in Phoenix, if not earlier series in the playoffs last year. They try to set a low screen for him around the foul line area, below the foul line area, which creates a little confusion so he can get downhill or it creates a switch. If you set it with a small like George Hill or Grayson Allen, you can get a switch onto the small. They did that. That had some effectiveness, but even something like that wasn't super effective. And I know going back to your Bucks fandom, this offense where Giannis is in the middle of the floor and they just flatten out and try to have him attack all the time is not your favorite offense. And again, to wake up today and look at the box score and try to square the circle of like, oh, you had 42 points, but the Bucks' offensive rating is in the 90s. Um, how are you feeling about all this? Well, I mean, when you look at like some of the granular plays, like there are some things that Giannis still did out there and that other players did that you can like zoom in on and be like, okay, yeah, this is why this guy's one of the best players in the league. There's one play specifically that I think of where, you know, there's a pick and roll where Rob Will is, is rolling into the, the paint and Giannis completely shuts that down. There's a kick out. Smart gets to drive into the paint and Giannis kind of baits him. Like Smart gets hung up in the air where he's like, I don't know if I want to throw a floater. I don't know if, he wa- if I want to throw a lob. And Giannis gets the steal, kicks it out. He gets it in transition and throws a dime. And I'm like, that's the Giannis experience like that's the the apex Giannis thing that I want to be seeing from him so he still is doing like a lot of great things it's not like he's literally cheating his way to 40 points that's not what I'm saying like Giannis is still doing a lot of like top three player in the NBA sorts of things out on the court but I think my question back to you then is you cite this really low offensive rating uh but you're also combining that with Giannis's box score like right now especially with Middleton out Ben where else do you see creation like the first domino falling for the Bucks defense for the Bucks offense where else do you see that coming from if not for Giannis just kind of throwing his body into this armada of Celtics defenders so I, I guess what you're asking is if Drew Holiday uh, and Giannis are your two primary weapons out there and I would agree although we we saw yesterday a, a couple random Brooke Lopez post-up possessions that seem to kind of work. But if the thinking is, well, we're primarily left with creating offense and pressuring the defense through either Giannis or Drew or some combination of the two of them in a two-man game, what else would you do? Um, I'm not entirely sure what the answer is to that other than to defer to sort of my original thought. Um, which may be too narrow-minded, but my original thought just seems to be, what if the Celtics defense is that good? And if you don't have Chris Middleton, if you don't have another guy, then we can play as many games as we want. But that Bucks offensive rating is not going to get north of, I mean, I'll just throw out a number, like 105 or 107 or something. It's The, the defense to me has been that good. So I don't know what the answer is necessarily for Milwaukee in the half court, I think they've had success in transition before that defense can get set. And if somehow the Bucks defense, which has already been great because the Bucks have been taking away the paint, we should talk about that. Maybe that can spring more transition. I don't know. But this, this series is going to be a grind to me because it's hard for both teams to score. The question is, who is it less hard for? That, that seems to be the question. Yeah, because I think the team build for the Milwaukee Bucks specifically is, you know, the, you have the three guys of, of Drew, Chris, Giannis. Chris is out. And everyone else that's spaced around them, is, is a play finisher, more specifically, especially off the catch and shoot. And you pointed this out in your, your Patreon breakdown of Game 1 between the Bucks and the Celtics, where there's a few opportunities that Giannis was able to take advantage of, where maybe uh, Smart doubles as a, super aggressively when Grayson Allen is one pass away. Maybe shouldn't do that, and you give Grayson Allen a wide-open three. Um, and you have a couple of instances like this, where they're maybe a little bit too aggressive helping off, and that's what the Bucks want, is because Giannis wants to then kick it out to the closest, pa- uh, the closest offensive player and get a shot. But 
none of those guys are going to like really do much creation. Like Grayson right. Allen can get into the paint when he has a straight line drive. He doesn't really have like a strong dribbling bag and whatever else. He's a pretty small guy. Pat Connaughton's probably even worse at doing that sort of thing. Like he just kind of charges in and uses his athleticism to try and, I don't know, rise up and do something. Bobby Portis, he's a good tough shot maker, but he's not going to be creating for everyone else. So I think that's really the situation is what we're seeing from the Bucks is kind of their only option. Like they're going to have to just live with generating this around 100, 105, 97 offensive rating and then hope their defense is good enough to bring the Celtics lower. One question I get all the time is, Ben, how can I break into working in basketball? Or what are the best ways for me to deeper my understanding of the NBA? And my immediate answer is always sports business classroom. That is the good stuff. Two of our Thinking Basketball team members are actually SBC grads. And it's an immersive program that takes place inside Summer League in Las Vegas, where you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, Zach Lowe, and more. This year's session runs from July 10th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's THINKINGBASKETBALL for $300 off. If you're interested, check it out today, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. The Celtics in Game 2 made that adjustment. It looked like they stopped with some doubles. They stopped with overhelping. They let people like Grant Williams play Giannis straight up for the most part. There's some stunting, meaning they're faking the double and then recovering. And and I think that's worked tremendously well. And so maybe, you know, in Game 3, Milwaukee got away from more of those kind of like wing post-up touches and went back to the middle of the floor, setting that screen in the foul line, that kind of game. Um, Bobby Portis, it's interesting you mentioned him because Bobby Portis is not someone, obviously, you want to run championship offense through. But if he gets a mismatch, I think he's actually shown in the last two postseasons that like, he has a little, to use our favorite term lately, has a little juice on the ball. He can actually do something. The issue with Portis, we saw another adjustment yesterday, o- only minor adjustments yesterday as far as I could tell, where Portis um, didn't start the game because the Bucks basically didn't want to live with so many jumbo jumbo lineup minutes. So the jumbo lineup to me is Lopez, Giannis, and Portis on the front line, where you basically have three bigs on the front line, but especially because of Giannis's versatility, you can get away with it on defense. Well, against the Celtics, as I pointed out in that Patreon video, that forces Giannis to go chase somebody like Jalen Brown. And one of the Celtics' offensive weaknesses, which is meeting the Bucks' um, sort of kryptonite here, is outside shooting. So the Bucks are playing a math game by saying like, we will force, we're, we're going to take away the paint. And Boston in this series, their numbers in the paint are incredible. They are 32 of 59 at the rim in three games. That's only like only 20 rim attempts per game. And that includes transition. One of the possible things, um, we'll see if it comes about in a video this week, that I was uh, really looking at yesterday and going into the film on is the number of looks at the rim the Celtics had in the half court. It was almost zero. <laughs> that's That's been the trend. It is extremely difficult for them to get attempts at the rim in the half court. And when they do, they meet the, you know, the wall of Lopez or the house of Adetokounmpo. Um, that's, that's basically what they're running into. The short mid-range, inside 10 feet. 9 of 38 in the series. That's 23%. So inside 10 feet, they're not taking many shots because they can't get comfortable shots. And they're shooting 42% on the series in an area that is usually the highest real estate area on the basketball court where, you know, 5 to 10 feet, you might shoot 45, 46%. And then at the rim, you expect to shoot 55, 60, 65%, depending on who you are as a team. So all of that is to say, um, yeah, this series is a war. (laughs) Yeah, and and Bobby Portis, again, something that's difficult with playing him is is Marcus Johnson. We talk about Marcus Johnson a lot, but he's one of the the play callers for for the Bucks. But he called Bobby uh, Bobby Blitz during during the season. That's because Bud doesn't drop him too much, right? He he blitzes ball handlers or he hedges a lot and recovers a lot because uh, he's not a very strong rim protector. But when you have like, and this is what we've been seeing for years now, back when we had the 
What season was that? Was that 2019 when the Bucks defense was historically great? 2019, 2020? Yeah, because that was, that was right before the pandemic shut down of the NBA. But uh, Lopez and Giannis are, are apex like rim protectors and their entire system when those two are out there is like we're gonna do as best as we can to give up threes and they could be wide open threes to especially Marcus Smart to Derek White to Al Horford who burns the Bucks a little bit yesterday especially in that fourth quarter I don't know how many threes Al Horford hit but uh he was he was a very efficient scorer and he's been an efficient scorer during these playoffs but that's their whole thing is they're like we're gonna try and give up these open threes and we're gonna we're going to bet that you're not going to hit them. And in return, we're just going to completely take away the most efficient place in, in the game. So uh, I think that's the other thing that goes on with, with Bobby is that he can't play that sort of drop, shut down the paint defense that both Giannis and Brooke can. Right. And I forgot to connect the point about how Portis got subbed out um, because there's, there's, a, there's a touch point there, which is the Bucks win the math game by getting the wrong guys to shoot the most threes. Uh, which isn't just a percentage thing. You and I were talking about right before we recorded. Grant Williams, when he's set in the corner and comfortable, that corner three is deadly. But if you run him off the line or you make a move or something like that, he's got to take a dribble, your percentages drop way, way down. And so what Milwaukee wants to avoid when they when they pack the paint and basically say, you're going to have to take 40 or 50 or 60 threes, is they want to avoid the Celtics guys getting their shots in rhythm because Boston knows that they're going to have to do that. So Marcus Smart will take 12 three. I mean, what's what's Marcus Smart's career high for threes in a game? Did he have like 11 or something? That sounds about made. right. Made. I think he made 11 threes in a game. Did he once. make 11 threes? We should probably get our our crack research team to uh <laughs> to look this up during the show. We'll, we'll get back to you on that. But the point I'm making is if Giannis has to go chase Jalen Brown around, especially if Jalen Brown gets a rhythm, he'll make six or seven threes in the game. We saw this in game two. So that was an adjustment where you change the lineups. But changing the lineups in that sense, uh, at least in theory, only upgrades the Bucks' defense because of those twin towers without having to chase anyone around. But back to the original point, does it get them any more spunk on offense? I don't think so. I think this whole series is first to 100. The teams might not score 100 points in the next three games combined, maybe. Yeah, uh- Sorry, I was I was just talking with our research team, and it looks like Marcus Smart hit hit eleven threes back in the twenty twenty season. He hit eleven threes in a game. I'm yeah. I'm pretty sure. I I think yeah. I haven't double checked my research team, but this seems to be what the, what they're telling me. Uh, but let's let's actually let me flip this conversation really quickly because it's been very Bucks centric. Um, if you're the Boston Celtics though, because we're also talking about what them doing, what the Bucks want them to do on offense. How do the Celtics counter the Bucks defense to try and consistently get a better offense? I, I don't know either. I, I, don't, um, I think some of the stuff in the mid-range that we saw yesterday is okay. The, the reality is the Bucks are going to sit there with Giannis and Lopez, and they haven't dropped all the time. Yesterday, Lopez had a decent number of drops, at least in the first half from what my notes um, on Tatum. And Tatum has to make that three. In game one, Lopez was way up at the screen, screen every time, taking away the pull-up three. Tatum, here, here's another subplot from the lunacy of yesterday's game. Um, Tatum hurt his hand in the second quarter on that crazy dunk attempt where Giannis was trying to block his shot from behind. Did that throw off his shooting? Is that wrist okay? It was his right shooting wrist that he that he banged on that play. And then he couldn't throw it in the ocean afterwards. So I, at this point... I, I'm I, I'm like a rock in a hard place as well. I'm like, I don't know what either team is going to do. I think the Celtics just have to make those shots and kind of make sure. I'll say the one thing about the Boston offense that's been successful um, is moving it early and moving it quickly. The possessions where the ball is moving around, they seem to be able to get better shots. And I think at some point they're going to have to try to shoot at the rim on some of those half-court possessions because there's been a handful of shots in, in each game at least game two and game three where they've been like at the rim and we're like oh, i have a layup but i see one of the monsters nearby so i'm going to kick it back out i think they probably have to shoot a few more of those but in the second half yesterday especially that fourth quarter huge run getting out in transition or just in early offense getting penetration um and either driving or kicking or driving with the intent to score and getting a foul was a was something that i think unlocked them a little bit but it's it's tough sledding both ways Cody and I think philosophically something that's really interesting about both of these teams 
is that it doesn't seem like either team has a player you can pick on. And I think that's a big conversation that happens a lot is, you, you know, have, you have a strong ISO creator and it's like, all right, we're going to do a bunch of pick and rolls until we get the switch that we want. And then we're going to attack. Neither team really seems to have that. Like, I think Boston is stronger in that respect. I think the top seven or eight for Boston's roster with who, who would even be at the bottom of the top seven, right? Like Tice, Daniel Tice, like Daniel Tice is still doing his, is doing his best out there. And he had a couple of nice switches on Giannis throughout the series and he can hold his own in the paint, but he's probably the weakest of them all. And they've basically just benched him. They've said, we, you don't even get Tice anymore. You have to. Derek White is the is the weak. I guess Peyton Pritchard when he's out there mm-hmm. for a few minutes, but they they hide him in terms of the rotation. They they will put Pritchard out there and try to avoid having him out there with uh, with Drew Holiday and Giannis on the court for the Bucks at the same time. I, I'm I'm curious, Cody. Would you rather have a team that has no one to attack defensively or no one that you can ignore offensively? I love this question so much because I think you could dedicate like an entire podcast series to answer this. But I think like if we throw out whenever you talk about team building things, throw out the all time superstars like they kind of screw up everything like they they're so good that they kind of transcend this idea of actually trying to build a team. So if you're actually building a team like a roster with actual talent that a team would have in the league, I, I think I lean towards not having anyone that's a defensive liability. I feel like that's my first inclination. Once again, if we're throwing out superstars on either end here, and I think if you if you get closer in that respect, I think you would rather have a team that has no defensive liabilities. What do you think? When you say throwing out superstars, what do you mean by that? So, like, if you're talking about building a team, like, you can have this ideal, like, oh, I want all of my teams to look like the 2014 Spurs. And you're like, okay, so what does someone like LeBron look like there? It's like, okay, when you have LeBron on your team, when you have, like, peak LeBron, you kind of throw out all conventions of what a team looks like. Because LeBron can break all these these uh, rules for how you should actually run, like, an, an offense or defense or whatever else. So I think it's much more interesting to talk about it when you scale it back and talk about players that aren't quite all-time level players on either offense or defense. Well, I, I, that's funny because I think... I my instinct is I would rather have a team that you can't attack uh, any weaknesses defensively. But I actually think of the superstars when I think of having a weakness on offense that you could ignore. Because if you're trying to defend an all-time player like LeBron, we know post-illegal defense error the last 20 years, you're going to load up to the ball. You're going to overload the side. You're going to roam off players. You're going to ch- cheat. You're going to shrink the floor. You're going to sit in driving lanes so you can help off people. Uh, There is a Patreon extra video from the bubble 2020 talking about how the Lakers did that against Houston, where they just said, look, Russell Westbrook spotting up behind the, you can, you can play Robert Covington at center and go micro ball, but we're just going to help heavily off Russell Westbrook because we don't care if Russell Westbrook gets an open catch and shoot three. And that was on James Harden, of course. So I actually, I have a hard time with it because of the superstar situation, because I think what happens when you have a guy you can ignore versus a Luka versus a LeBron, whatever, is it gives you a little extra to cheat off and defend. And then when you remove that weakness on offense, especially against the great passers, it becomes very difficult to defend them. Yeah. And I guess even thinking about what we were just talking about with the Bucks they almost have that where the Celtics can't double or help too much on Giannis because the Bucks want Giannis to get doubled. Like they want the other players to get these open shots. So the very fact that everyone they throw out there can hit a three or or even like Brooke getting into the paint and, and scoring some kind of post up, like every single one of those guys out there can get hot and, and buoy an offense for a while if if you're you're doubling. So I think the Bucks are a good look at that. And even like Chris Herring a couple of days on a podcast, he, I think he referred to the Phoenix Suns as, as game plan proof in that sort of sense where everyone that the Phoenix Suns roll out there, especially their starting five, you can't leave open. Like, you can't scheme off them. You can't do the, like, Marcus All, not Marcus All, the Andrew Bogan on Tony Allen defense, where it's just like, we're going to ignore him. Like, and, and that cause, that it's just really difficult for a defense to handle. So, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know. But if we're talking to closer to league average level teams, I still feel like I lean not having somebody on defense that you can attack rather than somebody on offense that you might be able to ignore. That's a great point by Chris Herring. The, the legendary Chris Herring, leave it to him to make that point about the Phoenix Suns, who um, they are a machine, but part of the reason they're a machine is both offense and defense. Everybody has their role, and within that role, there's no like clear-cut weaknesses against most opponents, 
right? So whereas the Mavs on the other side of the ledger, and as of recording this, the Mavs are down 2-1. We're recording this before game four on Sunday here. Um, They have a situation where uh, if they go really small, then Aiton can abuse certain guys inside. Uh, even Luca on defense, especially in game two, we saw him wear down in the second half and they just said, we're going to put you in pick and roll and you're going to have to find a way to cover this. And so from the Mavs perspective, they need to react and adjust by saying, okay, we could pre-switch, we could go zone, um, right? We could change our screening coverage, but we have to do that to protect this weakness. And is that a deal breaker in a series? No, it's not a deal breaker, but it's it's really nice not to have any weaknesses and yeah wasn't that the key to what was that was that game two when the suns just relentlessly attacked luca in the fourth quarter yeah yeah now now of course um dallas has come back and won game three this feels like a series where we're recording before game four but game four feels like everything right because if phoenix however it happens almost literally no matter what the game looks like if they win by one point 40 points um, by injury, it doesn't matter. Going going up three one, and then going back to Arizona and having another home game in their pocket after that. It seems like that's probably all she wrote, especially given how good the Suns are. On the flip side, if Dallas can find a way to win today again, and you know Dallas is kind of this like grindy puncher's chance team, they got you know you get a Luca game or something. Even even game two before that explosion at the end of the game, especially for Phoenix's offense, that was an extremely competitive game with Dallas ahead, I think, in the third quarter for a while. And Dallas has had success on offense throughout the series. Their offensive rating, unlike it's the opposite of the Bucs and the the Celtics, those teams score quite a bit in that series. No one can stop anyone else. Yeah, and a big part of that, going back to the initial question that you asked about offense and defense, is the Suns talking about being scheme proof? It's not like the Bucks, where it's like, oh, Grayson Allen's great if he's wide open. Pat Connaughton's great. Did you see the no dip threes from Pat Connaughton? By the way, oh baby, oh my god, oh, he had two or three of them yesterday. Yeah. It was glorious. One of them, I don't know if he dipped in a centimeter, uh, but anyway, the, these great plate finishers. But with the with the Suns, especially with DeAndre Ayton out there, I mean, I think I've said this before in this podcast, and I'm only getting getting further into this point, but I feel like DeAndre Ayton is the best like twelve foot in play finisher in the nba he's 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 unbelievable it it, it's does like seriously what is his shooting percentage on those shots i i know we can look at play by play and that's going to include all of the hooks and everything but those moments where he just catches it in a little seam in the defense from eight feet and just puts up a little soft toasty marshmallow like Eighty percent. It just feels like he never misses. I love this because it's not like a typical post score. It's not like they're like you know setting him up in the low block and letting DeAndre and go to work. It's like no, he just kind of like hangs out or about twelve feet away, ten feet away. And if he gets it there and there's an inch of daylight, like it's it's butter, man. Like that thing. I don't care where it hits on the rim. It's going to go in. You ready? Showtime on May third. Summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May third. Read it PG thirteen. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Cody, I know you want these warm, fuzzy, big numbers after we talked Eastern, the Eastern Conference uh, bloodbath. Um, Phoenix, 123 offensive rating in this series. Dallas, 117. The Suns have outscored them by six points per game in the first three games. Um, do, do, you have a, do you have a sense of uh, how are you feeling about this series? Are, how are you feeling about the whole West? Let's, let's take a step back. How far are we into this podcast? I think we're ready to get really existential and talk about the state of the Western Conference. Okay, so the state of the Western Conference. 
uh, I feel I feel pretty confident in who I think are going to win both series. Like, I do think ultimately the Suns are going to win the series, and I do think the Warriors are going to win the series. I do think, and well, maybe we'll get to them in a second. Maybe we will. I'm looking at that time, so we'll see. Um, I, I feel a lot more confident in the Warriors pulling this one out. But I think the Suns, just by nature of, of Dallas having this really interesting, like, almost like better 2001 Iverson sort of build where it's like we have Luka doing a lot of stuff, but then they have a strong defensive ecosystem around him, but Luka's just better offensively. And Luka is just, again, like authoring this tremendous playoff run once again. So that's just, that's just a variable that's really hard to account for. But the Suns are just relentless in the sense that now that they have this lead, I, I feel pretty confident in them taking it. Let's go back to DeAndre Ayton because he's been huge in this series for me. Um, Mil, uh, Milwaukee. I still got Milwaukee on the brain, man. Um, what is the name of this team they're playing? Dallas. The Dallas. Ma- There's an M in there. See the Mavericks. Uh, they don't have a lot of size, and their defensive success. And I think they've had decent moments defensively in this series. Has still been since the Porzingis trade about rotations. Maxi Kleba, the great Dorian Finney-Smith some versatility here and there. Luca's defense was better as a positional threat. Um, I still don't know if he's moving 100% after the calf injury. Um, you know, we could have fatigue because of what's happening. Dwight Powell is athletic, but none of these guys are big rim presences, um, big bodies, shot blockers. And so I should say Reggie, Reggie Bullock has... Am I pronouncing? Have you have you heard the TNT guys talking about how to pronounce it? I have. That threw me off. I don't even know how I used to say it now. Yeah. Now I I feel like we're we're reaching the point where the accent is so hard in one direction. It's like it's like so. I think it, people used to say Bullock, and it's Bullock, but now I'm hearing like Bullock. <laughs> like it's like Klingon. It's like Reggie Bullock. Um, he's played very well, but none of these guys are big, and so. Aiton, um, yeah, the raw numbers are what they are, seven, 17 points per game. Um, but it's the fact that when he's on one end, he is a rim presence. He is a big body. And on the other end, he can attack a little bit. But Dallas doesn't have the same sort of paint presence or rim protection in the paint. I think that's compounding with some of the other issues. I think that's why it's been hard for Dallas to stop Phoenix. So it still feels like a series where they need to find ways to outscore them and the offense has been successful and then they need the defense just to hold the dam. You know, the dam is ready to burst, but they just need to hold it enough and maybe force the Suns into some slightly, um, you know, atypical shots or same kind of thing we talked about with the Celtics. Maybe instead of Jay Crowder, who's shooting percentage, true shooting percentage in the series through three games is 83%. Instead of him getting all those shots in rhythm, you know, maybe, maybe you have him, um, come off a screen and quick fire. Maybe, maybe you force him to take 12 threes a game and he's uncomfortable with that. I don't know, but I'm kind of with you. Um, yeah, the the West is the West is a lot of offense right now. So a couple final points about this series, I think. So Reggie Bullock, I feel like if I were to make a list of the best defenders in the NBA who's never going to be considered for an all defense team, Reggie Bullock might be in that conversation. I don't I don't know if you feel the same way, but I'm constantly impressed by it, by what he does. He's great at navigating screens. He can pick up full court. He's he's just rangy out on the perimeter. Did, how, how do you feel about that take? Well, I agree that I don't think he'll ever be in consideration for an all-defensive team. But I do think in this series, he's done a the the points you're picking up on, um, whether they're consistent throughout the year, I, I wouldn't want to comment on. But in this series, I think he's done a really nice job. I, I think he's had three good games in this series, frankly. And I want to talk about another player then. I want to go back to Aiden. I want to ask you because you're, you're mis- more Aiden, more okay. Aiden, more Aiden. That's how we're doing it. We keep going back. It's like recursive learning. Like we talk about a subject, we go back. It's like, nope, we're not done with that yet. Um, you're the historical guy, Ben. DeAndre Aiden, do, can you think of any NBA players in NBA history that are a good comparison to how DeAndre Aiden plays? Um, I'm going to throw that question right back at you because it, I, I feel like you have a specific comparison, a Cody comparison. If we had Paul Schaefer here and a band, we could play a little music because this is time. This is the time of the show where we get our, our classic Cody 
comparison. It's like time for the it's like the Cody comp, the Cody comp. <laughs> it needs like a, Let's a have specific it. sponsorship. First of all, first of all, I need to pause. I need to to bring in the drum roll. Roll. I made that Drew Holiday Oscar Robertson comparison, and like a week ago, Bill Simmons just made that comparison. I just just want to put that one out there. I'm actually I'm going to end that right there, and we're gonna we're gonna move on to this. We're gonna move on to this, so you know that there's maybe some. I don't know accuracy is the word you're looking for, but there's I'm, I'm coming from a place of logic. So Aiton, I thought of two players. It's a combination of two players. I think Aiton's offensive game reminds me a little bit of a combination of Amari Stoudemire and Pau Gasol. Except, here's the thing. I don't think he's quite the off-ball play finisher of Amari Stoudemire just because of Stoudemire's uh, uh, rim-running ability. And he's not quite the post-up threat or even close to the passer that Pau was. But the same idea of both of them combined. Amari Stoudemire, Pau Gasol. We're going to have to ask the audience if if this is acceptable for you to get away with this comparison. I think that I actually just think the hard part about comping Aiton is big men play so differently now than back then. So to me, there are similarities with Patrick Ewing, but he doesn't, but no big man would play like Patrick Ewing. Now you wouldn't have the back to the basket pounding methodical post up Uh, with Aiton. It's his mid range jumper, his baby hook, his touch, his ability to get up and finish lobs, um, putbacks and offensive rebounds. I think, that's kind of, and he's just done such a nice job carving out that role on the Suns team. And then, of course, around him defensively, they switch one through four, and they don't really try to switch eight in screens, and he's a drop big. Okay, there's one more series. Speaking of bigs, the the masked man has returned. <laughs> how, are, how are you feeling about, I full full disclosure, full transparency, I did not see game three. I have to go back and catch up on game three. So I have not seen this Embiid performance. But, of course, everyone is talking about it. I've seen some of the clips of his defensive performance in that game, uh, the Miami Heat offensive struggles. Like every series we've got going, it's 2-1. Cody, where's your, where's your mind at? The East is just like nobody can score, and the West is like nobody can defend. It's just like the good old days. This is phenomenal. So Embiid's return to the series – I didn't think it would make a difference. Like, I was pretty confident after those first couple games. Like, oh, Miami's got the series in the bag. I'm not so sure right now, Ben. Hmm. I'm really not so sure. Like, the rim deterrence that Embiid had on defense blew my mind. The amount of times that one of the Heat players got into the paint or drove and were like, nope, I'm not doing anything about this guy here. It, 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 like, threw off their entire game. And I'm really interested to see how they're going to adjust. But that was my biggest takeaway is defensively, like that rim deterrence. It's not like he was blocking shots left and right or contesting a bunch of shots. He just straight up negated Miami's ability to take a shot in the paint. That was my main takeaway from this game. All right. This is exciting. So it it sounds like you think Philadelphia can come back and win this series. I do. I wouldn't like, I'm not a betting man. I don't want to put percentages on things, but it's at least in the cards now. Like before I thought there was like, I thought this might've been the clearest of the four series left right now, but just because of that one game, and I really don't want to overreact to it, but because of this one game, I'm like, wow, maybe there is a sliver. And there's one thing that like, that really stood out to me. And I've talked about this before, but Bam Adebayo is, you know, whatever ranking you want to say, best uh, big man switcher in the NBA, tremendous at stepping out on guards and things like that. Miami loves switching Bam. They just love switching Bam. But there is at least like one instance, right? There is one instance where Bam is guarding Embiid, Embiid gets the screen, rolls into the paint, and, and, and Bam switches out. And when they enter the ball into Embiid, who's waiting for him in the paint but Kyle Lowry? Like... Like, it's it's great, Bam, that you can switch, and I love the, the switching defense, but when you have somebody like Embiid, who just, like, he caught it, and I think it might have been Butler who tried to come over and help, but at that point, Embiid was, like, turning towards the basket, and it's over. Like, there, there's nothing you can do at that point. So I'm really interesting, interested to see if they're going to adjust that at some point, because I feel like there were some times when, if Embiid got the ball against anybody else in the paint, there's just nothing they could do. This this is, this is, uh, this has been a lovely show, um... Any any final words before we get out of here? All I think the Dallas Phoenix game is about to tip off. Maybe we should just go watch that game. Is there? Do you want to talk about Warriors Grizzlies in like a minute? 
Warriors Grizzlies. I guess we didn't cover Warriors Grizzlies. Um, th- that's why you're here, Cody. Thank you. <laughs> I, I thought we covered that, but um, that was just only in my mind. I had that conversation with myself. The, here's, here's my takeaway from this series, and I thought it became very apparent reviewing the film in Game 2. Golden State gets whatever they want on offense. And I don't know what Memphis can do. I'm not saying Memphis can't do anything, but it feels like Memphis would try, need to probably have a radical change or they're going to just live and die based on the Warriors shooting variants. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean they can't get to a sixth game. I'm not saying that doesn't even mean they can't get to a seventh game. But that's my big takeaway from what I'm seeing developing in that series. And last night, I actually didn't really watch much of the second half last night because um, I, one, I just went on living my living my life and enjoying my evening, took a walk outside. But two, I was like, okay, this game looks like it's over in the sense that in game two, game two was that wild game with Memphis winning down the stretch, John Morant having 47 points. And so on that side of the ball, one concern might be how do we slow down Morant? Um I think a decent amount of sagging off him is still warranted. I think Wiggins did a decent enough job on him. I think even when they switch, you know, Clay's not the defender he was pre-injury on the ball, but even when they make that switch, it's okay. Draymond Green on him is probably, I mean, this is just crazy to say, but Draymond Green's probably the best defender on him, but you wouldn't want to use Draymond on him for the whole game. So I came away thinking like, okay, that's still something that Memphis has going. It's Ja Morant, of course. But it, I don't think it's a huge concern. It's certainly not the same level of concern that when you watch the offensive possessions for Golden State, the ball's popping in all the places you expect it to pop. It's Draymond Curry pick and roll. It's pool. It's off-ball movement. It's extra passing. Um, and maybe one thing they could rein in that we've already talked about, I don't want to beat it to death, is Clay Thompson's shot selection. But when they have decent shooting games, uh, it doesn't even matter. Like last night, they were on fire. And you're just going to keep getting those same shots. And, and, you know, what was the final score? Like plus 30 or something like that? What, they hit 140? Did they go over 140 last night? I thought it was 142 to 112 or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, So what do you think? I mean, that's, those are my big impressions after three games of that series. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to beat that clay point to death, but that's something that just stands out to me every time, especially when it's like pool and clay out there. I'm like, man, clay is really liking to shoot when he gets the ball here. Um, but yeah, defensively for, for the Grizzlies, like I'm seeing a lot of switching with like Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson. And, you know, I think Jackson, like throughout the, the season, showed off some good switching chops. But there were like, especially like in that second quarter, which is probably the quarter I really zoomed in on the most, there were quite a few possessions where like he couldn't do anything with staying in front of Steph or, or Poole. And it's not just him. Like I feel like Steph and Poole are just kind of touching the paint whenever they they want to and again if you're switching out jaron jackson onto the perimeter you're taking away their best uh paint protector who i think he's done a wonderful job defensively when he's actually in the paint but when he gets those switches like man w- once you get the the warriors blender there's nothing you can do with that and along with that i feel like the warriors are letting them shoot a lot of those threes like in that second quarter there was a three from tillman there was a three from jackson there was the uh, who else like jaw was hitting a couple threes and so even though the score is getting close and even though it got to about 10 points at the end of the second i'm like i feel like this lead could be even bigger because the grizzlies are just kind of playing the variance game with three pointers so i think between those things like the, the shoring up the defense and maybe relying on too many threes i don't know i i wouldn't be surprised if warriors uh swept the rest of the series so to speak it was it was 142 112 uh golden state with a 138 offensive rating in game three (laughs) um and and of course you know that's what happens when you come out and hit 53 percent of your threes but they only took 32 threes it was 17 of 32 from downtown and when you're on a team with steph curry jordan Poole, clay thompson Otto Porter gets open shots and he knocks them down. And then Wiggins, Wiggins, I've said this before, he just needs to not go full Mo Williams. Um, bless, bless Mo. Mo was a good player. I, we, you know, somebody's got Somebody's got to fall on the sword here for that term of sort of underperforming in the playoffs relative to a, a big regular season. Um, so it's kind of double-edged in that sense, but Wiggins has shot some of his decision-making if that gets out of whack, it obviously takes the Warriors offense down a notch. But when he's in position to finish plays and when he's able to just knock down some of those wing threes, 
it's more of what you saw last night. And um, that's when the offensive machine is humming. Jordan, Jordan Poole continues to play at a very high level. Steph Curry hasn't even really detonated yet. I don't know how many times he can detonate in the playoffs, but as we've talked about throughout the season, especially once that hot start cooled off with his shooting, I think in both the first and second round, he's continued to play very well in all the other areas of the game, which means um, not just you know holding holding the fort on defense for his position, being the small guy out there, but playmaking, passing, decision making, get off it, move, you know, cut gravity, create confusion. There's that viral clip going around of um, Curry and Poole linking arms under the basket as they cross cut. I mean, that that's just, just the the reality is you need to attack this Golden State team for for most defensive roster constructions. You're going to need to attack them on the other end. You're going to need to take advantage of, you know, Poole and Clay and Curry all being out there. But of course, that's why the Warriors have Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green and um, knock on wood if he can come back at some point, Gary Payton. Like they're trying to balance that. But I don't think the answer for a normal defensive team, even a switchy athletic defensive team like Memphis, is just, oh, well, we're going to win this series holding them to a 110 offensive rating or something. There's just too, too much shooting, too much offensive juice. I think we should dub that play the interstellar slingshot because I'm pretty sure there's a plot point in interstellar when they have to sling around the black hole uh, to make it back to whatever. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen interstellar, but it's the interstellar slingshot as far as I'm concerned. Isn't that what they did in Apollo 13? Oh, is it as well? Yeah, because you need to use the moon's gravity to, to, to loop because they weren't going to land in Apollo 13. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they had to properly use the moon's gravity to slingshot and come back around so they could get home because they were low on fuel or something. I mean, if you think it's been a long time since you saw Interstellar, wait till I tell you how long it's been since I saw Apollo 13 in theaters. Uh, but if we're going to make a that, comparison that has to do around roping around the moon versus roping around a black hole and entering the fourth dimension, like, come on, let I, I know which comparison I'm going to use. That's true. That's an excellent point. Um, if, if you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's patreon.com slash thinking basketball. You can get some of those extras we talked about. We have a proprietary stats leaderboard that updates daily and a community. Also, remember to check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Enter that code thinking basketball for $300 off. That is it for Cody. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end. And wherever you are, I hope you are having a great day.